Let me open the seltzer. Sorry. Drinking mm. seltzer on microphone? That's very unprofessional. I'm sorry. Just wait. You're going to be burping mid-question. <laughs> wait till you if hear I know one effects. thing, it's that you should drink flat water on microphone. You know this is like 60% fart sound effects, just in case you didn't <laughs> know that. 60% uh, fart sound effects, 40% real burps. <laughs> that's right. It's a real gastrointestinal uh, uh, adventure. Welcome to Tomorrow. Today on the podcast, we discuss Tommy Bahama, objectivity, and goth ninjas. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're feeling the pain of having outdated technology, count on Atlantic.net for the latest firewall, intrusion detection, backup solutions, disaster recovery, and virtualization. Atlantic.net is a hosting solution provider that features HIPAA compliance for healthcare, PCI compliance for e-commerce, and dedicated hosting for ad tech. Made and managed in the USA, Atlantic.net provides dedicated cloud-managed co-location and hybrid hosting. So whether you're starting a new project or not getting the results you want from your current providers, Atlantic.net has solutions to help you succeed. With fully audited services and 23 years in business and six data centers, four in the U.S., one in Canada, and one in the U.K., they won't let you down. Atlantic.net, simple, fast, reliable server hosting since 1994. Visit Atlantic.net to learn more. Yes, you got it. It's Atlantic.net. My guest today is a real renaissance man on the internet. He's a uh, podcast host, a producer. Uh, he, he runs the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, uh, is the founder of Put This On, which is a blog about clothing, uh, and he's an all-around wonderful guy. I'm, of course, talking about Jesse Thorne. Jesse, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Did you, do you, I assume you loved that intro. Very kind. Yeah. Probably, almost you're, too kind. You're an expert in podcasting. You're one of the first podcasters in the world. Uh, <laughs> when did you start, po when was your, what was your first podcast? I started podcasting in 2004. When they didn't even have, um, they hadn't even invented the iPod yet. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was literally, I would, I would download podcasts to my computer, then transfer them manually to a a Rio brand MP3 player. Wait, is, is this true? There, I think there was an an iPod in two thousand four. I you think serious? iPods existed, but yeah. I I've been po I have been podcasting since before iTunes supported podcasting. Yeah, which was a nightmare, so, a nightmare scenario yeah. for everyone. Yeah and the it, the original the uh, the original thing that I podcast was my radio show, which is now called Bullseye. At the time, it was called The Sound of Young America. Yeah. And basically, my idea at the end of two thousand four and beginning of two thousand five was that if I could get fifty or a hundred people to listen to it, then that seemed worth it. And how many did you get? Fifty or a hundred. <laughs> and you're like, it's worth it. Yeah. Um, but you're you have a you have a crazy. There's so much that I want to talk to you about. Uh, and 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 I hope that I can get to some of it, but but I think you have a really interesting career. You're like a multi instrumentalist internet person, which is my favorite kind. Like you don't just do one thing. There are some people that are like I'm a vlogger. You can find me on YouTube. I'm going to be reviewing, you know, I don't know pr gadgets or whatever, and that's their whole deal. Or like 
I'm a skateboard enthusiast. Anyhow, but you are like, you have a, a Maximum Fun, which is your creation, correct? Yeah, I would say that my brand, Josh, is having a job that's difficult to explain at cocktail parties. That's great. I, I totally get that, and, I, and, I, and I'm excited about discussing it with you because uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not in any way trying to compare myself to you because that would be foolish, but I, I know the feeling of having a hard time describing what you do for a living. Um, so you are the founder of Maximum Fun, a podcast network. Uh, mm-hmm. You work with great talents like John Hodgman, very funny guy. That's true. Uh, you have several podcasts that you do, like you're just like a guy who does shows, right? You've got the turnaround, uh, where you interview interviewers. Is that a correct way of describing it? Yeah, I, it's, that's a, that's sort of like a, that's my hot new project. It's a, it's a, a dozen or so part show where I do in-depth interviews with interviewers. Then I do two comedy podcasts. One called Jordan Jesse Go with my uh, good friend, the comedy writer Jordan Morris. Um, that has been going for more than ten years now, um, and remains moderately successful. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, uh, I work with John Hodgman, who's another old friend of mine, uh, who folks probably know from his work on The Daily Show, um, or as an actor or as a writer. Um, but John and PC. I do a show called. Uh, the Judge John Hodgman podcast, yeah. where he is a judge of real life disputes, and I am the bailiff. <laughs> uh, I'm not accredited law enforcement, Have according ever... to a thing that I literally had to fax to a bad to a badge manufacturer in order to get the badge that I made for my stage costume. Oh, you have a badge. That's nice. I have a badge, but I had to certify that I was not going to use it to impersonate law enforcement. That's good. That's, I think that's reasonable, actually. I wish that we had as much of a, a, a strict a system for uh, getting a gun because yeah. then we, we stop a lot of crime. <laughs> um, so, okay, and, then, so th- and then I also, I also run a, a menswear blog called Put This On yeah. uh, that has we, – we used to make videos. It's been a while since we've made videos, but we, we used to make videos that I hosted and, um, uh, and I make – Accessories <laughs> and sell vintage things through. What do you mean? What do you mean? Make accessories. I have a lot of jobs. What What is the accessories part? Give me an, a, like a belt. Uh, we have a Pocket Square subscription service. Okay, what's that called? It's called the Put This On Gentlemen's Association, and uh, then we is... also have a shop called the Put This On Shop where we sell, um, uh, in addition to caps, scarves, and pocket squares that we make, also vintage items that I buy. Yeah, and sell. Well, this is the most interesting. What about Bullseye? Did we mention Bullseye? Oh, yeah, and I host a show for NPR. <laughs> Remember that other thing you do? Yeah, uh, my my college radio show now, uh, more than 15 years later, is uh, a show on NPR called Bullseye, where I do in-depth interviews with people from the worlds of arts and culture. Right. Okay, that's sort of what this is. Uh, so the tables have been turned on you. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I want to put this on. First, sure, because uh, I am, I am a put this on, like I, I, I know put this on separate from you. I actually didn't know that you d- were the put this on guy uh, until <laughs> until you know we booked you for the show, and the, it, it was in the you know some of the material I got about you, and I was like, this is crazy because put this on, I've been looking at for years. Uh, and I know it intimately, uh, and, uh, I'm constantly trying to put things on 
And mm-hmm. tell me about what it, where that doesn't fit. I mean, to be perfectly honest, doesn't map to you're like, I do this podcast, this podcast, this other podcast. Uh, I run a podcast network. And also I have this uh, accessories company and I tell you what to buy on eBay uh, in men's clothing. So tell well, me yeah, how that I would happened. Say, I think it would also be fair to say that my career is a foul-mouthed comedian doesn't track with my secondary career as a serious public radio interviewer. So yeah. there's a lot of pieces that don't come together. I mean, uh, why did my wife marry me? She's much better looking than I am. Let's talk a about better that person for a too. Let's, you, a dated, lot of, you dated her since you were 17. Incongruous, yes. I think the, the if you want the actual answer to why my <laughs> wife fell in love with me uh, and eventually married me, it's because we went to arts high school together and I was the only straight guy around. Wow. So just the luck only of the, heterosexual luck of the man available, and so, <laughs> so you just got lucky, the, is, is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and you told her at some point you're like, I won't, someday I'm going to have a blog uh, where I talk about eBay items that are available and what yeah. sizes they're in. Well, with that, I mean, I've always I've always been interested in uh, fashion and men's style. It's always been one of my greatest interests. And um, there's not a lot of room for that on my NPR show. I mean, I, occasionally a little bit of it will slip in here or there. Um, but it's not really, for one thing, it's very visual. Uh, for another thing, it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit in that well with what I do on the air there. And it doesn't have anything particularly to do with being a fake bailiff on a, a comedy, uh, court show. Well, but you accessorized, so, you did accessorize. Exactly. So like, uh, basically what happened is years ago, I was hanging out with my friend, Adam Lissagor, uh, who now runs a big, uh, tech video company called Sandwich Video. And he was working as an editor at this company, and his most recent high-profile gig had been operating the Predator cam in one of the Alien versus Predator movies <laughs> because he was the only person who could operate a camera. He was the only person on the set of this movie who could operate a camera, wasn't in the cinematography union, which the, you, couldn't, you couldn't be in the cinematography union. A union member couldn't be in the Alien versus Predator suit. Oh. And then oh. also was short enough to fit inside the Predator. Huh. Um, so he got he had that job. Oh, but the Predator anyway, is I was short. Hanging, I would never have guessed that. Yeah. I was hanging mm. out with him, and I was thinking, like, how could I, I— I had wanted to make media around menswear, but I thought it should probably be video because of how visual it is. And I wanted somebody who could help me maintain a, a particular tone, which is to say, I think with Put This On— and what we do, uh, our goal is to be both respectful of men and uh, and, and their aesthetic tastes and choices that that like, and also uh, be friendly and pleasant in a way that not all fashion media is. So, so like our idea was that there had to be something besides either, of course, you love runway fashion and dress that way and spend all of the money in the world and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the other option, which is like, we're just guys. We're dumb. Our girlfriend gets us dressed. (laughs) And um, there was had to be something that was that like included some that included some like how to stuff, um, but also wasn't demeaning like a beer commercial. Right. Um, and so that's what put this on came from. I thought, you know, I'd like for it to be kind of funny, but not at the expense of liking clothes. Um, and I knew Adam was a director. I was like, Adam, do you want to try and make some videos? 
we made some videos and I thought, well, if we made some videos, we should probably have a website uh, and maybe a blog would help us retain the audience in between the episodes because we're not going to be able to cut these more than, you know, one or two a month. So I started the blog and, and imme- like when I started it, it's by far the most successful thing that I've ever done uh, upon launch. Like it was, there was a real audience for it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm still doing that, but that was, I don't even know, five or seven years ago. It's been around um, a long time. Some- Something like that, and and uh, you know the blog is still one of the biggest menswear blogs in the world, and um, we have it has a professional staff, and uh, it's really awesome. I'm very I'm very proud of it and my association with it. But here's the strange thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I am. Is there a put this on podcast? No, we've never made a put this on podcast because <laughs> it's like I don't know. We <laughs> we've talked about it, but I don't know what it is. Like talking about fashion is boring. Um, looking at fashion is interesting. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, it was like, it's one of those things where it's, it's almost, it's like a, it's like a making a podcast about paintings. Like, sure, you can describe the brushwork, but it's not the same as just looking at the painting. It's the same way I feel whenever there's a, whenever there's a New Yorker article about a painter and there's like one or two illustrations in the 12 page article, and I'm like, I just want to, I want to see this picture that you're talking about. Right. They That's how I that. think I would feel if I, if I was listening to a menswear podcast. Cause, cause you'd be talking about like an ascot or something. I don't know if you do ascots, probably not, but, uh, you'd be talking about. I'm wearing some kind two of, ascots right now. <laughs> or you've doubled up, double up. Yeah. Is that, is that a one thing? One up top and one down below, if you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, low, I don't the, know what that means. The lower ascot. That makes sense. It's an example of my <laughs> brands not not fitting together well. I like the idea I like the idea though of pants that have some like a cleavage area for that makes room for an ascot, right? Like the belt <laughs> instead of going straight across they kind of dip down the way a shirt does like a V-neck. It's a V-neck in your crotch and there's an ascot spot right there. I like You that. know about do you know about dre- the idea of dressing when making pants? It's uh, when when someone when a tailor is making pants for you, one of the questions they generally ask is to which side do you dress? Mm-hmm. Uh, which means if you're a man, yeah. um, which way your stuff goes? Yeah, which direction so your they penis can, lays in? So, <laughs> yeah, so they can make you make allowances for that in in dressing you. Yeah. So they, if they don't ask, they're noting it. Right. Um, and so I, do you, that, straight down. You go straight yeah, down. Well, straight down, then you're going to need a third leg. On your pants, <laughs> or you need a little small, spot for the ascot area for the ascot, you know, a free small, up some room. Creepy in the, third leg in the center. Um, okay, so but you love fashion, uh, mm-hmm. not enough to podcast about it, but you're a big fan of it. You have and how often are you actually contributing to put this on? I mean, are you like, hey, there's a? I mean, you're not actually still finding stuff like and saying this, you know, go get this size forty military jacket. Are oh you? yeah, absolutely. I, really? That's actually the thing that I do the most. Yeah, well, we have, as you alluded to, one of the things on Put This On is we have this list of stuff that we find on eBay. Um, Stuff like suits made by now out-of-business Savile Row tailors, things that you wouldn't know to search for on eBay. Um, Vintage military jackets, as you said. Yeah, see a lot of those, I feel like. Yeah, we do it once or twice a week, and uh, I actually contribute a pretty significant portion of those. And that's because... Even now, when I'm feeling, like, nervous or bored um, or I just want to take a break from my regular work, just kind of 
putzing around in the vintage section of eBay is definitely a mm. hobby of mine. So mm -hmm. as I do that, I'm grabbing things that I think are particularly interesting and dropping them into this Google document that we share. Um, and then they end up in the, in the roundup. Like I, I have a feed reader. This is how deep it goes. Yeah. And I, by the way, all, we've all, already alienated anyone who started <laughs> listening to this show and didn't I, already know who Well, I was. luckily it was uh, barely anybody to start with. So we're, I yeah, think but, we're all set. But uh, I have I have in my feed reader, um, I have literally like a thousand ish saved searches on eBay, um, yeah. and so you know when someone when someone posts a Deej and Skinner suit, um, yeah. or someone posts an Arnis Forestier or Forestier. Uh, Forestier, I guess, because there's an E on the end of it. My French pronunciation isn't strong. Jacket. Uh, then I see it, and if it's cool, I drop it into the. I, I drop it into those eBay roundups. We put a lot of work into those. It's not just, uh, you know, we don't just uh, uh, search for the name of a designer and call it a day. Right now, these are deep cuts. Chestnut colored Frank Clegg briefcase. Yeah, that you're fine. Frank Clegg makes really high quality leather goods. That's the that's the kind of thing that I have a collection of bags. I keep just keep buying bags, more and more bags, like in the search for the perfect bag. I don't know if you have this problem or not, but that's the thing. I, I'm like, oh, I'll buy that probably. It's probably sold already. Let's see. I drove to Orange County uh, some Still years available. ago to buy from a weird lawyer guy in an office park a set of three handmade British suitcases. Yeah. Um, what brand? That, uh, they are... Um, Globetrotter? No, 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 no. They're better than Globetrotter. <laughs> Globetrotters are terrible. I bought a set and they all have holes in them. Let it be known. Um, Huge waste of money. Uh, Don't I'll, do it. I'll think of it in a second. But the, the problem is that you can't... I mean, you can't bring them on an airplane because they're leather. So they're both extraordinarily heavy <laughs> and extraordinarily ill-suited to the baggage handling practices of a commercial airline. And so you either have to have fly private or just uh, be on an, uh, an ocean liner uh, <laughs> with just like a team of guys behind you carrying everything for you. And this um, is... So they're mostly just sit in my... They mostly just sit in my house and I look at them and think about how I have them. Right. That's... But I mean, sometimes that's the best thing in life is yeah. just to have something, right? Not to actually... You don't have to use it. Um, but this is interesting because I think uh, uh, it's it does tap into... You know, there's certainly an audience that's like, we got a little, there's like some money to burn. You want to look good, but you don't necessarily, there's not a great, like my father, not saying he's a bad dresser or anything, but, you know, being dressed up or looking nice was not a big, he wasn't like, man, I got to look great today. And now I feel like I'm bad mouthing my father. He's a fine looking person. I'm just saying that. But he's kind of an asshole. He's. He actually is kind of an asshole, a uh, very cruel man, um, but, uh, but wonderful. Uh, but anyhow, but so it's, you know, like I didn't, I got no tips on how to dress. And then there's like Esquire does a thing. It's like the black book. And it's like, it's just a fashion spread. Like it's just new stuff you can buy. And that actually doesn't yeah. make clothing. Like that's not how you dress well, like just buying the new stuff. Um, well, I think for, for us, ultimately it came out of, you know, I am uh I am a very old, I'm the oldest of millennials and my, my parents are, uh, older baby boomers and for them and their generation, I mean, you know, my father was, uh, professional 
veterans peace activist for much of his life. Um, mm-hmm. For that generation, rejecting the cultural standards that had been that had been the previous seventy years of America was uh, was de rigueur, and a big part of that was you know throw away your necktie, right? But what it led to was a generation of guys in Tommy Bahama shirts. And so right. uh, I, I think that the generation after that was not burdened with the generational conflict that the baby boomers had with their parents. And so for folks in Generation X or millennials, young men, um, looking good is not seen as, as a symptom of being complicit with the man. And uh, that is the man with a capital M. Yeah. And so, you know, part of our goal was to say, like, yeah, it's okay to, it can even be subversive if that's what you're interested in to look good. Um, and here's some, here's some ideas about how to do it. Um, and again, like, not in a way that presumed that men were stupid or lacked aesthetic values. Um, but also not in the way that they do it in those magazines, which tends to be, uh, you know, those, those uh, we posted a, a great article by a woman who was the editor of, I believe it was British Vogue, um, and she sort of laid bare how deep their relation, the relationship between their editorial and their advertising ran. Yeah. And, you know, if you ever read one of those magazines and you think this feels like it's just a way to trick me into buying the thing that's advertised on the opposite page, that is literally exactly what it is. And so we just didn't want to do that. Yeah. All right, let me ask you some questions. Shorts. Yeah. Shorts? Do you wear them? Yeah, well, I mean, I wear shorts, yeah, totally. Are you wearing them right now? I'm wearing jeans right now, but uh, I wore shorts yesterday. What kind of jeans do you have on? I have on LVC jeans, Levi's Vintage Clothing. Mm -hmm. Is that a Um, a heavy heavy, uh, denim or what? No. It's a medium. It's a reproduction of a Levi's 501 from the late 1940s, from 1947. Um, and these ones that I have, I've had for something like five or eight years. And they have a lot of holes in them that have been patched up over those years by uh, my tailor's wife. And um, uh, some of them patched with fabric that we was left over from our pocket squares. And some of them... Uh, some of them just sewn up and some with, you know, denim patches behind them. So they're kind of spotty, but they, they're the, you know, one of the nice things about the, uh, the movement towards wearing high quality, quote unquote, raw jeans in the last 10 years or so, uh, at least in the United States in the last 10 years or so, is that, you know, there's this idea that if you are wearing something like that, that, um, essentially accumulates patina rather than uh, uh, diminishing in value, that if you wear something that over time gets better, um, it, it kind of shows a reflection of your life. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a grand and, you know, it sometimes can be silly thing, but uh, like these are jeans, the jeans that I'm wearing are jeans that started out hard as a rock and uh, midnight blue um, they had never seen water, you know, yeah. and at this point uh, there are places where they're almost white. Um, but there are still, there are still, uh, places where that dark blue shines through and it's all, uh, the kind of story of how, how I wore them. No holes, no patches. 
There are plenty of patches. There are tons of patches. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Crotch? I'm going to get patches? one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, How nine, about the crotch? ten. Ten on my left leg. What about in the crotch? <laughs> uh, no, the crotch, I sort of, we th- like one of the first things that tends to go with um, jeans that aren't washed super regularly, which is what people tend to do if they want to have more high contrast fades. This is serious denim nerdery is yeah, the crotch because yeah. it tends All to All my get, crotches are blown out. Yeah, All so I mean, I just, I had that, that was... I basically put in a double crotch relatively early on. <laughs> uh, that's it. That's the. That's what I need to fucking do. I've been. Uh, this is the answer. Thank God I had you on uh, this podcast because now I can finally wear jeans again. Uh, the dumb. But I, I also wash my jeans, and I also don't have that swampy of balls. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, okay. I'm not going to. I'm not saying that my balls are particularly swampy, but I will tell you, that's those what crotches, I'm man. Implying. They're the first to go. All right. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to be back uh, with more at Jesse Thorne. And I actually weirdly have more questions about clothes that I don't know how annoying this is or not. But uh, I didn't think I would talk this much about the clothing side of things. But it turns out I'm very interested in it. Uh, So we're going to take a break and we'll be back. Ryan, I want to talk to you about something very important that's been on my mind quite a bit. Okay. Uh, and I'm concerned, and I think it's time to address it. All right. I want to talk about HelloFresh. Oh, I'm, okay. glad, I'm glad you finally said it. Yeah, because I know you've been getting this, uh, you know, it's a meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun. Absolutely. So you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. And I know you've been enjoying that experience. Every moment, every morsel. <laughs> every morsel of the experience. Uh, now, is this true? Just I want to run some facts by you. You've been, you know this. HelloFresh, uh, each week they create a new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks who are short on time. Is this true? That's absolutely true. Okay. Which one, where do you fall into that category? Are you the novice or the seasoned home cook short on time? I'm a novice with a little seasoning. I'd like to know. That's I'm not going to get go into that. But I'd like to know if you can also be a seasoned home cook who has plenty of time. They don't cover that, but I'm assuming that that's also allowed. It's within a spectrum. It's all a spectrum. It's a spectrum. Interesting. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. True? True. Uh, They employ two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. I don't know if you can actually verify that, but do you feel like you've got uh, the right balance of nutrition in these meals? I've actually spoken to them, and it's true. And they deliver food to your doorstep in a recyclable, insulated box for free. True? Absolutely true. All right, so check this out. HelloFresh is offering light summer meals and has just introduced breakfast options. Actually, that's pretty revolutionary. So, delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, simple recipes you'll love to cook. So get cooking at less than $10 a meal. Okay, so here's what you do. For 30 bucks off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Topolsky30 when you subscribe. That's T-O-P-O-L-S-K-Y-3-0. That was my choice, uh, and you'll get uh, $30 off your first week. Support for tomorrow, that's my podcast you're listening to with me, Joshua Topolsky, comes from Talenti. When Talenti makes gelato and sorbetto, they tend to get a little overzealous. Did they need to use so many raspberries in their Roman raspberry sorbetto that the machine broke? Did they need to try 25 different chai teas to find the perfect spice blend for their vanilla chai gelato? Did they have to invent giant mince deepers? 
to make their Mediterranean mint super minty? And obviously the answer to this is no. They're, they clearly have a problem. They want you to taste something delicious every time you put Talenti in your mouth. Does their obsessiveness make Talenti gelato and sorbetto the greatest? You can be the judge. Uh, but yeah, it does. I mean, if you're looking for the answer, it actually empirically makes them the most delicious. Talenti, the delicious is in the details. This episode of Tomorrow is brought to you by Harry's. For decades, One Big Razor Company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of their customers, and Harry's is here to change all that. If you don't know or if you haven't heard of them, which is crazy because Harry's is everywhere, they were started by two best friends, Jeff and Andy. No Harry involved there whatsoever, but that's fine. I'm not going to hold it against them. Jeff and Andy, who were fed up with being overcharged for razors, so they started their own razor company to give people what they deserve, a great shave at a fair price. Harry's razors include everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. They give you a weighted handle. Ryan, you use Harry's, correct? Absolutely. Harry's shave sets start at just 15 bucks, and they include everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, including a weighted ergonomic handle. Ryan, you are using this shave set? Yes. How's the handle? Honestly, it's the best razor I've ever used. Okay, what cheap. color do you have? There's a green, there's an orange, and there's a blue. I have the orange. Orange is the only way to go. That's how I agree with that. Uh, five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade. You actually are very clean shaven right now. Yeah, so every I day. I feel like it's working. Uh, rich lathering shave gel. Do you use the shave gel? Yes, I use the yeah, shave it's gel. Good. And a travel blade cover, which is, I don't know how much you're traveling, but it's nice. I do out. actually to go to my parents. Ah, oh, wonderful. What are your parents' names? Tom and Lorraine. Tom and Lorraine. Those are such parent They're names. not named Harry. Unbelievable. So check it out. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their shave set for free. That's right. Just cover shipping when you sign up. To redeem your free trial offer, go to harrys.com slash tomorrow right now. That's harrys.com slash tomorrow. Uh, we're back with Jesse Thorne. We're talking about uh, the crotch of your pants being blown out. <laughs> uh, so actually not yours. You've, you've buffered against that. You're a very smart man. Um, we ran a story. By the way, I run a website called The Outline. I don't know if you've – you don't have to say you've seen it. It's fine. But um, we ran a story a few weeks ago about Fred Perry uh, polos being like a staple of um, sort of racist people, like white power and and <laughs> – and it's kind of a staple of racism. And, and Gavin McGinnis, who, you know, is a former, I don't know if you know Gavin or not, former vice guy who now is sort of a racist. Um, I think he probably was before, too. Yeah, no, no, I think he probably was. I think he probably definitely was. But um, he has a we thing. We can just could describe him. Celebrity asshole Gavin McGinnis. Yeah, celebrity asshole. In, his main thing is, like, he's Canadian. He talks a lot about American politics. Which I find it problematic that it's just out. It's just the sort start of it. Uh, anyhow, he sucks, and um, I mean, it, your opinion may differ, but uh, I don't know. It, he he has this like Proud Boys crew or whatever, and they all wear polos. These Fred Perry polos, and Fred Perry polos have become become sort of synonymous with skinheads. And uh, but obviously, Fred Perry uh, polos, polo shirts, predate the skinhead movement. Do you have any opinion on this? Well, I mean, uh, dropping this on you. (laughs) There are also many kinds of skinhead. I mean, I think it's important to note that um, there are there are tons of anti-racist skinheads, explicitly, specifically anti-racist skinheads. Um, So 
you know, having being part of that subculture, there is a big racist part of it. There is a big anti-racist part of it. Um, you know, one of the things that we write a lot about at Put This On, my my colleague Derek, who is uh, who's the editor these days, is a sociologist. He's a professional sociologist. And, um, I mean, he does a lot more fashion writing than sociology these days, but uh, in so many ways they are one and the same. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was an American studies major in school, and I believe that, you know, culture is a form of discourse, that fashion is a form of discourse, that you are saying something with the clothes that you wear. And uh, there is, you know, to pretend otherwise is to fool yourself. And so it's worth thinking about what you're saying with the clothes that you wear. Um, and, you know, I think even people who, who claim that they, are sp- that they are explicitly not saying anything with the clothes they wear, the people who say, well, you know, I, bu- I buy my jeans at Costco or I buy my jeans at Walmart or whatever, those people are also very specifically making a statement about who they are through their clothes. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that we argue at Put This On is that not only are you making a statement, but this idea that it is fundamentally vapid to care about the way that you present yourself is wrong. And that the idea that it is a lesser way to express yourself is wrong. Or the idea that to be a true rebel, uh, you don't represent yourself in the context of other people's cultural and social messages is absurd. Like, it's it's ridiculous on its face. So, right. you know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, these, these questions have come up around a few things lately. I mean, particularly with uh, the rise of the alt-right in the past few years, um, you know, people are worried about, oh, if I have a high and tight, if I have a high and tight haircut, and that's the official haircut of uh jerkwads jerkwad racists or jerkwad american racists yeah um does that mean i'm racist right uh, or Good if i'm wearing new balance shoes because the ceo of new balance is the only basically the only sneaker brand still making any of its sneakers in the united states he said maybe it would be good if donald trump got elected because um uh, because Donald Trump was talking about protecting American manufacturing, and they have some, and nobody else has any. Uh, and uh, then it was like, you know, oh, they are they the Donald Trump shoe, right? Yeah. Are um, they? Well, you can answer this question. You're an a expert on fashion. You could make a proclamation on No, that. of course they're not. That's, that's absurd. That's so you're a, wearing, would you wear a pair of New Balance? Yeah, I wore some New Balances probably yesterday or the day before. I, what about I a Fred Perry, Fred Perry polo? Uh, I would not personally, but I would not because I'm opposed to people wearing them more just because that's not my look. <laughs> right. But if I look like a dope wearing, no matter gotta, what. Sorry, go ahead. No matter what polo shirt I'm wearing, I just look like a jerk. I just have never been able to wear polo shirts without looking like a jerk. I think it's just my kind of general whiteness. At, like I'm the, I'm both too lumpy and like not. I'm like both too white and not white enough at the same time somehow mm. to wear mm. a polo shirt. Like I neither look like I'm neither able to look like a guy who belongs in a polo shirt nor like a guy who's making a comment on guys who belong <laughs> in polo shirts. Like I Andre 3000 will wear 
a polo shirt and look gorgeous. Yeah. And I can't do that. Uh, I'm too white for that. But then I'm not quite white enough for a guy who looks like he's, you know, on his way to the golf course. Right. This is why I, uh, this is, I mean, to me, well, I agree. I don't look good in polo shirts either. I mean, my feeling, my personal feeling is I don't. But, I mean, I feel like if you step out, you got a high and tight pair of New Balance on and a Fred Perry polo, maybe... Maybe your maybe your your outfit does something that that you maybe don't. Maybe those those three <laughs> notes constitute a chord. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the chord is, is ugly. Bum, it's an ugly bum, chord. Bum. Um, but uh, okay, so you don't have a, you're not going to voice a strong opinion on the Fred Perry polo. You're basically saying it's all in how you wear it. I'm not putting words. I just put words in your mouth. Yeah. But. Well, I mean, you could say the same thing about like something that is very in fashion right now is nylon bomber jackets. Yes. So like a, a classic nylon, uh, pilot's jacket, uh, is a, is a big fashion thing right now. You know, it's something you could go buy at, uh, uh, at urban outfitters or any other kind of trend following store. Um, that is a classic skinhead garment. Yeah. Doc Martens are another sure. thing. Like, obviously, you know, Doc Martens are an iconic skinhead garment, um, and they're also very much in fashion at the moment. Uh, they're, the fact that they're in fashion has more to do with a kind of 90s revival than it does with skinhead culture. Right. Um, and sure, I know that uh, Doc Martens are the only thing that holds us together, mods and rockers. <laughs> Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but you know, they're a classic, you know, the classic skinhead look is what? It's what it's a uh, white t-shirt or that, or the polo that we're talking about, a Fred Perry polo. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, high cuff jeans, tall Dr. Martens. Yeah. And, uh, one of those, one of those green nylon bomber jackets, right? Well, a lot of those things are in style right now. And I That's, don't think you it, just described, uh, uh like their latest uh, line. It's exactly that. I mean, I don't know. Yes. It probably isn't, but it's something like that. Or uh, who's the Russian designer that everybody loves? Uh, whose name I'm blanking on right now. I didn't. Uh, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is, is that right? issuing that as we speak to all of the youth in Russia. It's funny to think, actually, as you were describing this, I was like, oh, I could go put these items together right now. And well, I have a beard, and I mean, I look extremely Jewish, so I'm probably not in danger here. But. Um, uh, but I could put a look together and look pretty skinheady pretty quickly. It's actually like their elements are quite simple and easy to come by. Well, that's I mean, the whole point of them. I mean, you know, it's like the same as why are they skinheads? It's it's because they need to stand out, and that way no one can pull their hair if they get in a fight. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. We've taken this to a very dark place. Uh, very <laughs> dark, actually. You know, but that's the mood of the country. All right, so anyhow, so Beyond put this on. Oh, no, wait, I have a question for you before we get off clothes because yeah. I just have this one. So I have a theory, and I want to I know if my theory is insane to you or not. You obviously follow fashion trends, right, in addition to things that you think are fashionable and, you know, uh, stuff that you should buy, potentially. Um, I mean, you must have some awareness of fashion trends. Uh, so... You mentioned the jeans that kind of get worn down. We've talked about holes in the jeans, patching jeans. Um, there was this selvage was like a big deal for the last, like, let's say, you want to say 10 years? Is that fair enough? Yeah. Yeah, um, right. And selvage jeans, at least initially, now they're a bit more affordable, but they were pretty expensive. The people who were making, there was like these heavy kind of Japanese denim or whatever. They're like $300, $400 jeans. And then recently... 
I have a theory, and this is what I want somebody to back my theory up. And so if I'm leading you, just be like, that's complete bullshit. But um, lately, the distressed look has really come back into style. Like the last few years, last, let's say, year or so, two years maybe, clothing that's like ripped, worn down, like patched, seems to have become like a thing in fashion. And I want to know if you feel there's any correlation between buying a really expensive pair of jeans that you wear into the ground and then like still wearing them and the rise of the distressed look, if there's any correlation between those two things or if you think it's just a random, you know, fashion decision. Well, I mean, the way that the fashion world is now, it's really hard to say what is the look in the same way that you could when there were, you know, eight houses of couture and every Kansas City department store just offered uh, offered a knockoff of that that one year, um, you know, in 1960 or whatever. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of people are into... Uh, what they what they jokingly call the goth ninja look, the kind of Rick Owens, uh, the Rick Owens kind of how many different shapes and textures can we make out of black? Goth ninja, um, you say? Yeah, um, there's you know there's a there are a million different looks going on, but yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that um, I I think that to some extent, and to my disappointment, frankly, the kind of quote unquote heritage trend is is running out of gas. Um, What's that? Describe the heritage trend. That is, uh, it, you know, it was, again, it's the last 10 years or so, maybe especially the last five years. It's the idea of um, purchasing things with pedigree in a story, um, uh, quality built to last for a lifetime, in some cases made in the United States or uh, made in other first world nations in high quality ways. Um and a certain aesthetic that lends itself towards kind of classicism, mm. uh, not in terms of suited, but including casual. So, you know, like the iconic brand of it is probably, probably Filson. Right. The yes. Northwestern outdoors outfitter that's been making many of the same clothes the same way for a uh, hundred and some years and got purchased by a holding company a couple of years ago uh, who wanted to capitalize on their brand. Well, they did a really good job. Yeah, they, they they've done a great job. job, and they they make they make re- they still make very many very high quality products. Yeah, um, I mean, I wouldn't be inclined to buy a spend twelve hundred dollars on a Filson watch, um, but I can certainly recommend their luggage. Yeah, so they make very um, good bags. I have several uh, Filson bags. Yeah, and they're a, um, a very but high yeah. Quality. So that's that's that that heritage thing, and that's this is like uh, a this is like a best made uh, axe. This is yeah. like a campsite. The, this is like a kinfolk. Uh, you're those are the parody in a, versions of it. Yeah. You're wrapped in a. You're wrapped in a. Um, what's the uh, What's the uh, the wool company? The fucking. You're thinking of Pendleton. Pendleton. You're wrapped in a Pendleton blanket. You're sitting by a fire. You're drinking out of a best made tin cup. Uh, you've got some thick selvage, worn selvage jeans on. That you haven't washed in two years. Is this sounding right to you? Yeah, roughly. I mean, it grows out of uh, it grew out of substantially the aesthetics of it grew out of substantially a kind of um, interpretation of Americana that came from Japan. Um, of course, where <laughs> there was a there's a look. I mean, the look that you're describing is kind of related to this look called heavy duty, 
um, that was sort of codified by some Japanese magazines in the, I guess, probably the 70s-ish, um, but has been a kind of subculture in Japan since then. Yeah. Popeye, um, Popeye magazine. Big, uh, yeah, well, I was thinking of Free and Easy. But, oh, Free and Easy, uh, Popeye, sure. Free and the easy. magazine for City Boys is yeah. also a good example. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I'm, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've certainly been probably guilty of purchasing some things in these in the realm of uh, that stuff. Yeah, this stuff's in, great. I mean, like, to, to be fair, like, uh, you know, a lot of the values of that are values that I share. Um, I'm not nuts about best-made axes, the people who buy $30 hardware store axes and paint stripes on them and charge $250 for them. Yeah. But I do think that the idea of, you know, realistically, there's no such thing as quote-unquote classic fashion. That's not a real thing. But I think that respecting the the kind of values that endure in clothing are generally pretty good ones. They have to do with uh, beauty and functionality and the things that are that endure the best have those built into them and whether it's the functionality of oh I can chop wood in my Filson Mackinac cruiser or it's the functionality of my um, you know my polo suit uh, or my purple label suit uh, flatters my body proportions and makes me l- look more attractive than I am um, more, more sexually appealing, whatever. Are you talking about um, yourself now? I just want to be clear on where we're going I, with this. I don't really need the help personally, <laughs> but I'm talking about for other people who might need a, a hand. Right. With their, I'm right. pretty irresistible. Of course. But, but, uh, but no, if, I mean like there, those, those values of that heritage movement are, are, are like ones that I generally support, especially relative to the kind of more abstract and consumption oriented ones that sometimes are prevalent in fashion. But, you know, things change over time. It's just the reality of, you know, people put it to the consumer cycle, but it's it's human nature to to value a modest amount of novelty. Like you want some novelty, but not a scary amount of novelty. (laughs) Uh, Is there, who is is an iconic dresser that you think is a scary amount of novelty? Is that like a Lady Gaga situation? (laughs) Is that like, well, I mean, like... I think that in the in the context of the of the world in which she lives, it's very difficult to achieve a scary amount of novelty. I mean, in runway fashion, one of the things that they're trying to do is essentially make something that's so different that people talk about it, so that it markets their things that aren't very different, which are the things that people buy. Right. Um, so, I mean, in Lady Gaga's world. People are doing all kinds of crazy stuff to try and get noticed. I mean, the menswear version of that is there are these big uh, menswear shows in Italy, and guys, it's it, the guys who go there. You know, there are a lot of people photographing, and it's a very big sort of menswear cultural group. And you know, people all of a sudden people are like wearing one hat on top of another hat because they're trying to push the two hats at the same time trend. Yeah. Uh, but that's simply because there's so few moves you can make to be noticed in that context. Right. You know, because the baseline is is already so complex and, you know, the messages are already so complicated. Whereas me, I live in Los Angeles, like I'm wearing a sport coat right now. Uh, that is a very distinctive choice. Really? And what's distinctive about it? You mean just because you're in L.A.? 
Yeah, because nobody's and wearing nobody else. Right? I, bet degrees not, I bet there's two sport coats within three blocks of here. <laughs> Wait, you, so you think there are not a lot of sport coats? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, where I am right now, hell no. Uh, there's certainly, just... I mean, there's probably seven men who work in my office. None of them came to work in a sport coat today. Can you describe Casey a sport coat? Casey O'Brien, who's engineering this here in Los Angeles, he's wearing a, gosh, he's wearing a, a, a college sweatshirt. Ugh. It's not even a Get cool college sweatshirt. Get it out of there. Sorry, Casey. It must be horrible to look at. I apologize for on Casey's of... a lot handsomer than I am, so he oh, can okay. get away with that kind of stuff. <laughs> so wait, wait, describe the jacket you're wearing. Uh, the jacket that I'm wearing is a very lightweight uh, cotton, uh, khaki-colored cotton poplin jacket. Okay. Um, by a Japanese brand called Captain Sunshine. Uh-huh. Uh, who make... Their clothes tend to be sort of vintage-inspired and oriented towards a kind of, like, adventure aesthetic. Um, uh-huh. Interesting. Like, Did you not, buy this not on quite eBay? Like, not quite, like, full-on safari stuff. No, I didn't. I didn't. I got this from a store called No Man Walks Alone. But uh-huh. um, not quite, like, a full-on, not quite a full-on safari thing, but, like, not that far off. Interesting. And did you have a, is the rest of the outfit safari related or is it just a, and so we have to move on. <laughs> my, my engineer was just like, you, you got to move on from the jacket stuff though. I'm actually really interested now in your outfit. Maybe you can send us a yeah. picture of your outfit for the website when we put this up. Um, I'm wearing, I'll, I'll do it real quick. Okay. I'm wearing Clark's Wallabies. Yeah. Um, in a kind of Sandy suede. Classic. I got on That's a classic. Anonymous ism, cotton blue, navy blue, marled. Blue and white marled cotton socks, a yeah. Japanese brand. I got Int- those LVCs on. Okay. I got a Brooks Brothers black fleece, very lightweight uh, uh, button-down collar shirt on. Uh, tuck, underneath and light tucked blue. in? Tucked in? It's tucked in, yeah. Yeah, okay, good. All right. That's a good look. That's a solid gentleman's look. Uh, Clarks can't go wrong with those, although I broke my foot walking in one, just walking in them, so you guess you can, actually. No. I literally went to a trade show. Every year I used to go to this trade show called CES, Consumer Electronics Show, and one year I came back, and I had worn these new Clarks that I just bought, and I came back, and I was, like, limping. I was like, God, my foot really hurts, and I thought at some point I heard it crack when I was walking, but I was like, that doesn't make any sense, and, and I had, like, fractured my foot just literally walking, which either says Clarks are bad or I'm so out of shape and so uh, bad at walking that I can break my foot just from strolling uh, through a parking lot. That's my Clark story. Um, All right, let's talk about, we're going to shift gears. (laughs) We have like 10 minutes. I'm going to ask you things. So you, a lot of your, a lot of your time, besides all of this clothing stuff we just talked about, which I find utterly fascinating, turns out even more fascinating than I expected. um, But you spent a lot of time interviewing people and having conversations and I'm curious, do you consider what you do journalism? Do you consider yourself a journalist? And like, how do you, what is the, the purpose and what is the pursuit that you seem to be so um, uh, engaged in, if, if not that? I guess at this point, I consider myself a journalist. When my show was distributed by Public Radio International, I asked them one time, am I a journalist? And they said, eh, entertainer, I guess. <laughs> Um, but when I joined NPR, who now distribute my show, uh, I checked in with them and they're like, yeah, here's your ethics handbook. Oh, wow. So I guess I am a journalist. I mean, I, I'm sort of on the lemon, you know, like is, uh, you know, is Trevor Noah a journalist? I don't know. You know, I mean, he does interviews with people that are about real things. Right. Um, uh, I'm, he's much more talented than I am to be clear. Wow. But, um, 
But like for me, you know, on Bullseye, uh, which is my interview show, my goal was to highlight great arts and culture and find out where it came from. So that is in some ways a journalistic goal. I mean, it came out of a show that for years and years had a lot of comedy on it and stuff like that that we were doing. And don't do that stuff on that show anymore. Now it's a separate shows. But, um, you know, I mean, for me, the thing that is most interesting is where creativity comes from and why and how people make creative choices uh, when they're making something that I think is wonderful. So, you know, maybe that means today I, I interviewed Aidan Gillen, who's uh, a, a stars on he's on Game of Thrones. He plays Littlefinger, and he was also on The Wire. Oh yeah, um, he was in um, Queer as Folk, the original Queer as Folk um, in the UK, and uh, a lot of other great things. Um, so, like when I talk to him, you know, I want to hear about what kind of choices he makes. Like he's on this kind of grand opera, ridiculous show. And before he was on The Wire, which is one of the most realist toned shows uh, in TV history, you know? Yeah. So what, how does he make those choices? Like, what, what is he, how does he do his work, you know? So that is kind of a journalistic endeavor, but I always thought of myself, <laughs> I mean, I thought of myself as a host, you know? I've never been a reporter. <laughs> right. Um, I've never worked in a newsroom. I've never worked for a journalistic company, um, a journalism company. I've never worked at a newspaper or at NPR or um, at CNN. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sort, I'm sort of a tweener in that sense. But right. I, I've, I've been assured by some of the guests on my show, The Turnaround, that I am a journalist. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I, I, I listened to uh, you talked to Audie Cornish. Um, and well, Audie's a real journalist. I mean, Audie's the kind of person, Audie Cornish is one of the hosts of All Things Considered on NPR. And, um, I, like, Audie's one of those people who can, who, you know, her clarity of purpose convinced me that I was not a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm not that. I can tell you that for sure. Like, she's for real. I'm right. just some yahoo. Right. I mean, but your interview is interesting because, um... She, I thought it was, and I'm not going to, you know, uh, rehash the whole thing, but, and I recommend that everybody goes and listens to it because I thought it was really fascinating, but she sort of, you know, pushes you a little bit on, on, uh, turn, sort of turns it around. It's actually interesting because, you know, you've got to show, you know, this show is sort of the, the, the purpose of is, is interviewing people who normally are interviewing people. And she kind of shifts that conversation and almost like, I'm like, oh my God, she's interviewing him now. Uh, which she kind of jujitsued me. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Yeah, I mean, she's was, almost certainly smarter than me. <laughs> she but really she turned also, the table on you. She also has done a, a lot more interviews with people who are difficult to interview than I have. Um, she, I, I asked her if it was ever difficult to not voice her own personal perspective on things since she is representative of uh she's the face of a journalistic institution that that still believes very strongly in journalistic objectivity um and she kind of gave me the business about it yeah um and you know i i i i'm still not certain that i fully share her perspective but i certainly understand where she's coming from and certainly think she does a brilliant job of doing things the way that she 
thinks they should be done and that it's a very valuable thing for the world. Um, I mean, I really believe in NPR journalism, uh, speaking as, I guess, an NPR journalist, by far NPR's worst journalist, <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> the, the weakest link in the NPR chain. Uh, uh, but, but I'm one of the funnier people at NPR, I guess. The funniest link, <laughs> one of the funnier links in the chain, but weak nonetheless. Uh, you, but you, uh, your, your take on that is, and just so I'm understanding, and this kind of makes sense given your career path, you would prefer or you do prefer to know more about the emotional, philosophical, intellectual position of a journalist as they do their job versus having this kind of view from nowhere or gray sort of straight down the line view? I I think both are very valuable. I think in the kind of show that I do, um, my editorial perspective drives the show. And so knowing me means that you know the editorial perspective of the show, and I think that's important. Um, I, I think that, you know, especially for me on an arts and culture show, which is what I host, the idea of being, quote-unquote, politically balanced is very difficult to achieve if only because um, there are so few people who are politically or socially conservative who make awesome art. And it's not... not None at all, but like part, I think just the social position of the artist um, and the social position of the conservative are, there's not a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram. Right. So the idea of representing fairly though that world is very difficult. Um, and again, like I don't believe that there aren't uh, uh, artists or great artists who are politically or socially conservative. It's just that. Could you name um, one? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I can't. I can't think of one. I, I know there must be some. Charlton Heston, he's uh, dead, but uh, he Clint Eastwood. Oh, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Clint Eastwood is, but Clint Eastwood is a pretty centrist politically. He's a Republican, but I think he's pretty centrist. Uh, he, he uh, but anyway, for Trump, though, probably. That, that's not. Uh, that's not the argument that I want to get into. My main <laughs> point is that it really depends on what kind of work you're doing. So. Audie's job is to represent the world, right? To represent this selection of the things, to say this is what's important that's going on in the world and this is what we know about them right now. Um, in other words, as she, as she put it, it's not about me. Now, I also interviewed one of my genuine heroes, Brooke Gladstone, who hosts the WNYC and formerly NPR show on the media. Yeah, yeah, and she's great. On the media is... Uh, as she put it, an, an analysis and commentary show. Now, a lot of what public radio does is analysis and commentary. Um, as much as, you know, public radio is one of the, NPR is one of the larger news organizations in the country, it still has a tendency to tend towards analysis relative to, say, reporting or breaking stories, right? Right. Um, you know, relative to other big news organizations like that. Uh, certainly to, mo to many newspapers. So... Like Brooke on On the Media, she and her co-host Bob Garfield uh, are very upfront about their political views. And they believe very strongly that that doesn't mean that they can't do a fair program uh, or they can't do an honest program. And in fact, they believe that being upfront about their political views strengthens that. I think that's also a very valid uh, point of view. And it's essential for the kind of show that they do, which is to say a show that is driven by their personal perspectives and their understanding and analysis of what's going on in the world. Um, right. I don't think they do it from a partisan 
perspective. I think they're probably, I mean, I've listened to the show for many years. I think they're both, uh, you know, they're both on the left. They're probably both Democrats. But that isn't the thing that informs them. It's not a matter of the saying, okay, one of these and one of these. It's just to say they are open about who they are, what their perspective on the world is, and how that influences what they do on their show. And they listen to all sides and give give every part of the conversation um, a voice in the context of their kind of discretion and understanding and analysis. Um, but, you know, they have a point of view. And you, and you think th- you can sense that point of view. Exactly. And they, and they, they, when it's, when it's necessary or important, they state it. Um, right. You know, they right. don't hide it. They don't right. ever hide it. It's not a matter of inferring their point of view. They, they show their point of view. You think Audie's hiding and, it is what you're saying. Well, Audie, I think there are a lot of people who work in news who frankly are interested in the information like, they are interested in learning information. And Audie struck me. I don't know her really well. Um, you know, I've only met her in passing in real life. Um, but she struck me as, to some extent, one of those people, like a reporter, like a person who really is driven by the idea of finding out what's going on, right? And I don't think that that is a fundamentally partisan endeavor. Right. And well, many <laughs> of those people that I've known over, over the years are that kind of person you know right they're like that they're curious and that's yeah they're curious and and they're not driven by they're not driven by the analysis part you know right right yeah and, I don't and mean to that's say that just she's, a she's different it. I think point of view in to, the world yeah i didn't mean it's, it's a different way of being right like she's not being secretive about it but it's not part of the process and i thought that was a really interesting exchange um hearing you know because obviously like a big part of uh, like you said, a big part of what you do is sort of in some way editorializing or being the kind of machine of interest that starts the conversation to begin with, whereas she's obviously coming at these things from a, from a very purely journalistic standpoint, which is has a uh, clearly has a place, and with NPR, it obviously has a place. Um, I mean, for me, like on on my show, part of what I do is act as a critic. That you can't act as a critic without having personal perspective and showing what your personal perspective is. Right. So on my show, not only am I ultimately a person who decides who comes on the show, and that's an editorial and critical act, but I also write essays on the show about art that is also an editorial and critical act. Now, generally speaking, if you define objectivity as not having to do with partisan politics, you can go pretty far with that, I mean, there's the question of, like, do I laugh at someone's joke if they say a joke at the expense of the president, right? Right. Depending yeah. on what party the president is in, you know, that might be me expressing a, a, a partisan political view. But it doesn't come up that much. But it does come up. I mean, you know, one of my favorite hip-hop groups is a group called The Coup uh, from the Bay Area. And I had Boots Riley, who's the sort of leader of the group, uh, on the show a few years ago, and I thought, you know, Boots is a brilliant MC, a brilliant producer, and in my opinion, one of the, frankly, one of the great MCs in, in hip-hop history. He's also very explicitly a revolutionary Marxist. Mm. That is his perspective, and his his music generally isn't, you know, it's not 
agate prop, agate prop. Agit, um, I think, maybe. Agit mm-hmm. prop. Yeah. It's not, uh, it, it's, sometimes it is, but, you know, it's it's always informed by that perspective, but it's not like he's like, yeah, we're Marxist, go Karl Marx. Uh, <laughs> right. my, yeah. my name that'd is be, Boots, and I'm here to say I love be, Karl <laughs> Marx in a well, major way. That would be a bad, that'd be bad on so many levels. But, you know, <laughs> when he raps about poverty, like, that's part of what's going on, and I wasn't sure how to deal with that in the context of, you know, in the context of that kind of uh, editorial perspective. So for many years, I, I honestly avoided explicitly political art on the show. More recently, I've kind of given up on that simply because <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, my, my previous perspective had been in order to be fair and balanced, I would have to have some, hear some conservative voices among the explicitly progressive or liberal voices, um, or let's say leftist voices, um, and they don't exist really. Certainly not in, you know, I mean, if we just tried and we came up with one guy. Right. If Clint Eastwood wants to come on my show, he definitely can come on my show. Sure. No doubt about that. Let me be clear. Um but, like, I couldn't balance it out, you know. There's right. there's not a lot of conservative folk singers. So right. um, yeah, I was like, are. well, maybe I should just avoid it. These days, I don't do as much avoiding it because I'm like, eh, I'm just going to get the best people that I like the most and, you know, leave it at that. But, you know, it's, it, is a difficult, it is a difficult decision because my work requires an editorial voice. And NPR's ethics standards require... Uh, a news organization's objectivity um, and apparent objectivity as well. You know, the NPR ethics standards involve both how objective you are and how objective you appear to be. Um, right. So, you know, it's so a very wait, difficult that, does, line does to walk. Ch- does that change? So does that change what you do or what you can do? I mean, you yeah, can't, well, you in can't my have, life, certainly. And, but I mean, on, on the, uh, I mean, you've got the ethics handbook, right? I mean, is there a guest you can't have on because you'll be too combative with him? Or her? That's an interesting question. <laughs> I mean, if I had, if I had, um, if I had a guest on, yeah, this is it, frankly the competitive is not even where it is. Like, it's not even about um, if I had a guest on who I disagreed with. What if I have a guest on who I agree with? Yes, also a great question. You know. This is you're really boxed I, in. You're I, you got to go independent. What if I'm leaving it? What if I'm? What if I leave myself out of it? But you know, there is an implied endorsement in me booking someone on my show. Right. You know, we've been talking about booking this guy on the show, uh, and we probably will book him. He's a very funny stand-up out of San Francisco who's undocumented. He's mm-hmm. a dreamer. Mm. So if I talk to him about his life and experience, well, on the one hand, I'm reporting on that. On the other hand, am I endorsing art by undocumented performers or artists during a time when the act of, when the act of omission of being undocumented or whatever you want to call it, um, uh, omission or commission, is inherently political or just talking about being undocumented is inherently political, but man, in, that, inherently ideological. But that sounds really NPR-ish to me. Like to me, that interview sounds like a perfect conversation for an NPR broadcast. I mean, you know, you know that that's the kind of 
conversation I'd oh, expect yeah. no, and I want exactly to hear. I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, you're talking about like the thing that I've often, we laugh in the office about, which is the NPR pitches that we get. And it's always like this child soldier turned rapper. Right. <laughs> well, like the, you know. the only thing, the only hip hop you can have on, on the airwaves on NPR is like uh, if that, uh, if the hip hop comes from like a, a prison college group. Right. It's like a place of great pain first. Then. Yeah, or like, you know, like, you know, in a, in, in a lot of ways, Shakespeare is the first rap. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Oh, this is a rabbit hole. But this is an interesting question because cause you, you're, and by the way, I didn't, it, speaking of rabbit holes, like I think we went a little bit down one, which I, I'm at, interest, so interested in because it does, I mean, but, but, how, but how, you've been confronting these constraints for some, how long have you been, how long has it been going on? How long have you well, been? I've been with NPR for about five years. Yeah, now. so five years you've been con- you've been in a, you've been in this. Uh, emo- really, it sounds like emotional distress to me, and I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's not. I'm really. Here's the thing. Like, for me, I am in an unusual position because of what kind of show I do and what kind of guy I am. However, a, I agree with NPR's journalistic ethics policy. I think that it's great. I think that it I think that it makes for a stronger news organization and I think that NPR's greatest contribution to the world is as one of the strongest news organizations in the world. Um I think NPR is fucking great. Um and I think that their ethics policy is part of the reason for that. I think there is a a huge wonderful amazing place in the world for objective journalism or at least for journalism that strives for objectivity. I think there is also a place in the world for other kinds of journalism. Um, Journalism that strives for truth, uh, but not objectivity. Um, I think I am in an odd position because of what kind of odd, the kind of odd semi-objective journalist that I am, right? I'm in a world of reporters, and I'm not really a reporter and never have been. So I'm, an, I'm unusual in being in this odd place in NPR, and I accept it for that reason. Like, I'm like, well, you know, if this is, if this is what it takes to work with these people that I love and admire and whose work I so love and admire, um, I understand why they have these policies, and I'm cool with it. It's not a problem. You know, it's a conversation that I had with them before I started. I was like, hey, am I a journalist or uh, <laughs> am I an entertainer? And they're like, you're a journalist. And I'm like... So I follow the ethics policy. Yeah, I looked at it. and I'm like, yeah, I can do this. What does that you know? mean? You can't. Does that mean you can't tweet uh, angrily about Trump if you wanted to. It does mean that. Yeah. Oh, really? And I don't. Oh, okay. So yeah, you have I, thoughts about things you just literally can't put on Twitter. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my <laughs> I don't, and I don't say them. I don't say them publicly, and I don't. Uh, I don't say them on Facebook. I don't. This is crazy. Um, I don't say a- them with people who aren't in my family or whatever. Yeah. That's okay. That's that's part of what I signed up for. You're describing um, to me a prison, a great prison. Uh, <laughs> no, it is actually crazy now to think about this because I don't think my mental map of you includes this edited part. Like you seem like a – I'm not saying you're like, whoa, this guy's crazy. But you seem like a relatively unedited person. And yet <laughs> – and yet there is a tremendous amount of editing going on every day with you. 
behind the scenes. Well, it is fu- it is funny that I can uh, that NPR like when I signed up with NPR, I was like, you guys know that there's just a profound amount of vulgarity on my comedy show, Jordan Jesse Go. Like it is really filthy, right? Like warm hearted and in and not offensive generally, but like a lot of swearing and butt stuff talk. And, yeah. You know, no, in between, your, in, in between the Audie Cornish interview, this interstitial break, there's a spot for, and it's like about fart jokes. Yeah. And it's, I was like, what's yeah. this incongruous in some way? Yeah. So, <laughs> so like, I'm, I'm, I am, I am that, you know, like NPR to their credit, they were like, yeah, that is what he is. Um, but they did ask me to, uh, to be considerate of their policies around uh, journalistic ethics in terms... I mean, I also agreed to their other journalistic ethical policies. I mean, I don't take large gifts and that kind of thing. Sure. But you, what if you say, um, what if you go on Twitter and you say, I love Diet Coke, can you do that? Yeah, I can probably... I think I can do that. Yeah. And, you know, I think I can... I can make jokes about stuff. Like, they understand that I'm... They understand that I'm a professional humorist in part. Right. So... And that sometimes is about politics. I, I generally avoid electoral politics and try and shoot for social politics. And right. I mean, I think I'm allowed to be a human being. Like I have a transgender daughter. I'm allowed to say that when James Woods suggests that a trans a family with a, a gender creative kid, the kid is going to grow up to murder his parents, which he recently did on did- Twitter. I think I'm allowed to say my experience has been this. You know, I don't have to like. It's a calm way to I, approach I, it. I don't know that I'd be as calm as the way you just suggested. Is that what he well, said? I was, he's, a, he's a real class act, that James Woods. I, yeah, he's a, he really he's ruined. A, can I just say he ruined Vampires for me, which I think is a great John Carpenter <laughs> film. And he's now I have to think about that his actual personality every time. Maybe it's good you're not tweeting now that I think of it because I I think who knows what you actually think, but you can't you can't badmouth James Woods on Twitter, can you? Well, I sure did. Oh, okay. I gotta I, read those tweets. I can be the person. That, I can be. I can be myself. You know, but it's it's just like anything else. You know, on my show, Jordan Jesse go. We talk about ourselves in our lives. You know, but I don't give a full accounting of my life. I only share the part that the audience will enjoy. Hopefully, that I think the audience will enjoy. You know, so there's huge parts of my life that are left out of that, and I think it's fine for me to leave parts of my life out of other media as well. You know, I don't need people to know which uh, city council candidate I voted for. You know? Yeah, I guess not. I guess that's true. I mean, I guess in a way, this limitation is actually a gift because uh, I can say whatever I want on Twitter and I feel like most of the time it gets me into trouble. And you probably stop yourself from saying things that otherwise would be a headache. And well, recently I said that I like the characters on Seinfeld and I don't like the characters on Friends. That's correct. That's or a correct specifically opinion. that I find the characters on <laughs> Seinfeld likable and not the characters on Friends. That got me in trouble. Well, the characters on Friends are all horrible. I mean, they're horrible yeah, on they're, Seinfeld too, and they're but they're not more likable. I mean, that's the yeah. Outside of Phoebe, Phoebe's pretty funny. But yeah, Phoebe's great. They're all good actors, but like, oh god, could you imagine hanging out with them? What a Blame. I mean Chandler, Chandler, Joey. Who would be friends with Joey? It's One like everyone had a monkey for a while. I would hang out with anybody who had a monkey. I think that was Not be- Ross. Was that Ross? I just want to meet a monkey. Yeah, I think was that Ross. I've never met a monkey. But all the characters are unlikable. On Seinfeld, they're uh, they're likable, but they're horrible. They're ho- it's like horrible, unlikable versus horrible, likable, which I think it describes. Who is like who is so who? What public figure is like so notably despicable? <laughs> 
that I could say that we could just consider it a shared value, a shared American value, and I could say they're despicable. Because I wouldn't want to say a politician, an American D- politician. A Donald Trump? But <laughs> Yeah, well, I wouldn't want to say an American oh, you politician. Would. Just a person? Uh, like Gwyneth Bernie Paltrow. <laughs> Bernie Madoff. Bernie, I'm gonna say Bernie, Bernie Madoff. Madoff is dead. I feel like that's rude. Okay, but if he were still alive is he and dead? he had a monkey. Did Bernie Madoff die or is he still alive? Hold on, I'm he's asking. He's still alive. He's is he? I don't think he is. I think he's dead. I'm trying to set up this scenario. Okay. So Bernie Madoff, everyone agrees, is reprehensible. I guess so. Yeah, he didn't do it. If he... Bernie Madoff asked me to hang out, I wouldn't hang out with Bernie Madoff. This is presuming that he wasn't in jail. Or dead. If Bernie Madoff said, will you come over and hang out with me? He's alive. I have a okay. monkey and you can meet it. He's alive. <laughs> I'd be like, all right, yeah, I'll meet the monkey. So okay. like, I'll go to Bernie Madoff's so, house and so meet that monkey. Clear, I've never met a monkey. Just to be clear, reprehensible, public enemy number one, Bernie Madoff, regular invitation. He's not in jail. He's like, let's have lunch. You're like, no way. But he says, let's have lunch at my place. You can meet my monkey. The answer is yes. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. I mean, if I get to feed it grapes and stuff. Okay. So the monkey, you have to interact with the monkey, too. You can't, it's not just like Monkeys love grapes. Yeah, I don't know. I, dogs, I know, can eat grapes. I don't know how, what the monkey situation is. They train monkeys with grapes. So I think what you're saying is uh, friends bad, Seinfeld good. That's what I'm well, hearing. Well, Seinfeld, <laughs> here's the other thing that I also, so we have this show called We Got This, yeah. which decides important questions. And the hosts of that show came to me. They said, we want you to come on the show, and we're going to talk about best 90s sitcom. Okay. And I'm like, well, number one, I'm really going to alienate a lot of people who like Friends. I know that. Yeah, Friends, I know a lot of people like it. I don't find it, I don't find it interesting almost at all. No, it's lame. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's some good actors on it. Sure. That's what, I that's mean, what I'll say about it. Yeah, but that's like some saying— good, Some really good actors. I mean, and, uh, yeah, but—, but uh, There's uh, some really good actors on it. Jennifer Phoebe Aniston. is funny. Uh, Jennifer Cor- Aniston's a good Cox. actress. Courtney Cox is a good, funny actress. Uh, Chandler. I, I can't think it was. Uh, what is his name? Chandler. Lisa Kudrow, Matthew, Matthew Lisa Perry. Kudrow is great. Yeah. Matthew Lisa Perry. Kudrow is legitimately great. Yeah. She's a genius. But She's really fantastic. You know, Sean Connery is in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It's not a good movie. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. Sean Connery's a good anyway, actor. Anyway. I mean, it's, it, they, he's a wife beater also, so I think. I don't know. They feed monkeys grapes to train them. I guess that's I guess that's where we're going to have to leave it. No, actually, one more question before, and we went a little sure. bit longer. This is but really fascinating. I feel like we have not covered even half the things I want to talk about. But actually, and we sort of touched on this because we talked about your your current situation. Is there you've done you're doing a ton of stuff. You have a podcast network. You've got all these shows. You know, you've got this NPR thing. You're you're uh, you've put this on. Is there a ne- next thing? Is there a thing you want to do? A thing you like? <laughs> or you're like I want to. I wish I could direct a movie. And now that's like what you're going after. Is there like another stage? There are projects that have been that I've thought about or have been pitched to me in some form or another that I would love to do, but I could only do them if I didn't do these other things. And most of the things that I do are things that I have to keep doing or they go away. Like I couldn't. <laughs> Go like a away. job. You I mean. couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't take a year off of running Maximum Fun or take a year off of uh, hosting Bullseye. Right. Those things would be gone at the end of that year, and they wouldn't be able to be. I wouldn't be able to get them back. Um, but you know, like when you're on public radio, people email you and say, "Would you like to write a book about once a month?" Yeah, and I would like to write a book. It would be really a wonderful, fascinating thing to do. But that's a 
you know, that's a multi-year full-time job probably. Yeah. And I couldn't do it. You know, I've, I've often thought that I would like to make, uh, I would like to do, I, I have migraine headaches and it's a huge part of my life. And I feel like there's no media about migraine. Um, you know, like there's, like a blog, there's, there's no, um, there's, there's basically not, there's a few books, but, um, besides that, there's almost nothing. I mean, there's like those scenes in pie. Um, oh, I see what you but mean. You know, do you get cluster like, headaches or migraines? I used to get cluster headaches. I get, I get, uh, classic migraine. Right. Um, but, and very, very severe and chronic oh. and frequent. And um, it's a huge, huge part of my life. And I think like, God, I would love to do something about that. Like, I don't know what it is, but I have some friends who also suffer from migraine. And you usually don't know who they are, you know, in, unless it comes up. But like my friend Roman Mars, who does the podcast 99% Invisible, is also suffers from really severe migraines. And, you know, I know other people as well. And I thought, well, man, what, it would be fascinating to make a documentary about migraine. Um, but like, I don't... I, I don't have time to make a movie, to yeah. learn how to make a movie and make a movie. <laughs> I have an idea, by the way, that just popped into my head when you were describing this, which is actually I thought where you were maybe going was you wanted to do a, f a narrative fictional film about how all of these people get migraines and somehow they're connected. It's like an alien thing or something. I don't know. That's a freebie. No, it's like, a, it's like a crash, <laughs> but for migraines. Mm, it so also solves crash, racism. Is crash the, oh, you mean not the crash with wound fucking... Uh, not the Cronenberg movie, but the one no, about people the, intersecting. The one with Ludacris. Mine would also have Ludacris. <laughs> and no wound fucking in it, I assume. Yeah, uh, if it came up. <laughs> if that was an important plot point. Wow, this I wouldn't want to force wound fucking into it, but if it was natural. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking some... about, right? You know the movie I'm referencing. I'm not crazy. Yeah, there's I... a Cronenberg movie about people who sexually fetishize car crashes, right? Yeah, yes, yes. And the injuries I, I haven't associated. Seen it, thank God. The injuries associated. It's not great. It's not a great movie. I think James Spader is in it, which sounds right to me. Because it's probably it's something. It's not as good as Crash, the movie that solved racism. Uh, Crash won an Oscar. Uh, in, yeah, uh, for two, solving racism. In 2000. Do you have any idea how big of a problem that was in America before the movie Crash came out? And all they had to do was get a bunch of people with different backgrounds together on one fateful night, right? Something. You know, at the end of the day, it's just it's all about dialogue yeah. and ludicrous. It's true. Actually, ludicrous, unbelievable film career. Unbelievable film career. Okay, you know what? I have to, I'm literally getting the wrap-up uh, sign from the producer, which is rare because he usually just lets me ramble. Uh Jesse, this is, I really feel like we have so much more to talk about, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. You're a, fascinate, a fascinating man. Please don't interrupt me. You're a fascinating man uh, with, a, with a fascinating story, and, like, there's, you know, hopefully someday we can do this again and I can do the other half of the questions that I, um, I didn't get to. Well, I'm glad to come back another time we can talk about how great Tyrese is. I, I would love to do that. Jesse, thank you so much. Thank you. That is our show for this week. We'll be back soon with more. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best, though I've just been told that your family has been invited to have lunch at Bernie Madoff's house. He said there was a monkey, but there is no monkey. <laughs> <laughs>